nail, I've been attacked, I have an open fracture, I'm desperate, I need help, the intruder is in the house, help. Uh, I don't know, how about some band-aids instead? I don't want to upset the uh, intruder, you know. <gasps> but you promised, you said you'd help if anything like this happened. I need a cast, not band-aids. I need this maniac out of my house, he's gonna kill me. I got a press conference to go to, call me later, bye. Today, we are talking about Putin's invasion in Ukraine. And just a heads up, we are recording this episode on March 4th, so we don't really know what the outcome of this war will be. What do you think, Neil? World War III? Uh, I don't know. This is, this is all pretty surprising. I didn't expect this to happen, really. Me neither. I don't think any of us expected Putin to actually go in. I thought he was flexing. Uh, and really, I didn't think on the other side that uh, the U.S. And, and the U.K. and whoever else would really keep pursuing the whole Ukraine into NATO thing either. So I don't know. I think the Russians have a little more agency. They're the ones that started this. But the U.S. side seems like they just kind of sleepwalked into this while doing their, you know, following their manual or something. They didn't even think about it until it already happened. That's actually a very good point because I have a lot to say about that and not only about what US has been doing or not been doing, also NATO, UK, European Union, all of them. Now, the thing is, uh, there are so many things to discuss about Putin himself. And for that reason, we're working actually on an episode about Putin and how he rose to power and more importantly, the length to which he went to consolidate that power. So that will be a special episode for our subscribers only this month. And it's going to be really interesting. But back to the Ukraine situation, at this moment, as we speak, the United Nations Security Council is holding an emergency session on Ukraine crisis, which, in my opinion, is a travesty since Russia presides over the United Nations Security Council. And I don't know how to explain this in terms that will not offend anybody. It is an obscenity. There are five permanent members. Russia is one of them. If even one of these members vetoes a proposal, that proposal dies. Okay, so the fact that the United Nations Security Council is even meeting while Russia has the power to reject any proposal of help or is just a trap. It's ridiculous. Yes, it is ridiculous. I mean, if anybody was pretending that the UN was not pretty much just a formality before the Iraq war. The Iraq war ended that for sure. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's just a performance. It doesn't mean anything. Yes. I mean, on a diplomatic level, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna deny them their usefulness because things have been done at the UN and they've been helping. But then again, in this particular case, we have Russia who invaded a sovereign territory and they are one of the five permanent members. So I just don't understand how it is possible to have Russia there right now presiding over the Security Council. I don't understand why they are not being kicked out. Yeah, I think the main qualification for being on the Security Council is that you have nuclear rockets. And the idea being that better that you're in there, even if you're not well received, than not in there and not accountable to anybody and not communicating with anybody. So I doubt they're going to be removed, although I've seen that floated around a bit in the last few days. I don't think that's going to happen. I read his whole statement and it's 
it's somewhat surreal. It's very Cold War KGB, you know, sort of glory to the motherland kind of stuff. And it, I mean, it just doesn't fit like in this era. I don't know what he thinks he's going to get all of this, but I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to go well. Actions speak louder than words at this point, I think. He's killing children and women and targeting civilian places and the nuclear plant he's been bombing. It's, it's insane. Anyway, he's, he's unhinged and I think we just need to do something to stop him. And by do something, I mean really do something, not pretend like we're doing something, feigning outrage while slapping him on the wrist with more half-assed sanctions. Sanctions aren't doing anything either. I mean, these... Uh, you know, these European countries, uh, they need Russia's natural resources. They buy them every month. So that's probably the bottom line as far as why nobody's anxious to step up and uh, really do anything because, you know, they still got to put gas in their car at the end of the month. And probably if you're in Germany or uh, anywhere else in Central Europe, uh, a good bit of that gasoline is coming from Russia. So, You know, I've heard a lot of talk recently that Putin is unhinged, uh, but I've also heard that he miscalculated. Yes, in a sense, he did. He didn't expect such resistance from the Ukrainian, which have been fighting so courageously. And I have cried several times watching the news and seeing things online. It is absolutely ridiculous how much uh, the West should be doing, how much more, and they're not. And seeing all those things on TV just makes you want to pull your hair out. But Putin, I think he just miscalculated the Ukrainians' reactions, but really not so much the West's reaction, because so far, okay, so the West seems united. They say they're united again. They are with words and some action, but not all the action they could take. So first of all, They've only cut certain select banks out of the SWIFT system, the SWIFT banking system, which, why not all Russian banks? Because they really don't want to. Uh, they want Exactly. Yeah, so they, want, they want something for a press conference, but they don't want to do anything that has any real consequences. I mean, we are still, the, the gas and oil imports from Russia are flowing in as we speak right now. So I'm not, I'm confused as we, why are we still doing that? Because, you know, we can take our oil and gas from other places. If we really want to hit Russia, well, don't import gas and oil from them. And then it's it's been just so insane with President Zelensky of Ukraine, who is, if there is a hero at this point living on earth, it is President Zelensky. And he has been repeatedly requesting, pleading, begging for certain armaments, certain weapons, certain military equipment. And he has not really been getting it. So we've been sending, because people say, well, we've sent them 350 billion. Yes, we approved to send them 350. I mean, that's the funny thing. Dollars are... Uh, bad kindling and even worse toilet paper. They're only good for what you can buy with them. And what are you gonna do? Uh, you're gonna you're gonna tell Putin, wait, 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 we have to pause the war. I need to go to an arms conference and decide what missiles I want to buy first. No, I was that's, I was that's gonna ridiculous. Say, <laughs> I was gonna say I don't think President Zelensky and his generals have time to go shopping right now. Right, I, I assume they're pretty busy. But we send some armaments too. It's just that we haven't been sending 
what they've been asking for. That's the main thing. So anyway, let's move forward because I feel like the first part and the first episode about Ukraine should be more about what has happened to Ukraine before and how much they want democracy and freedom and how hard they fought for it. You know, and I think as we will as we will record uh, the second part of the episode, we'll focus more about the current situation in Ukraine and what has been happening over the past 10 days. But I would like to start with just a, a small throwback in the recent history of Ukraine, just so that our listeners can understand what kind of people Ukrainians are and what sacrifices they are willing to make for freedom and democracy. Yeah, and I forgot. I mean, honestly, this is, and this, it's kind of funny because, I mean, this is the whole premise of our podcast is talking about things that, uh, you know, happened in the recent history of the world that people have forgotten about. And I'd forgotten that I remembered when I saw him again watching those uh, those videos from the uh, the early 2000s in the Ukraine uh, when, you know, they were kind of ping-ponging back and forth between, you know, with one guy they're trying to get into the EU and with another guy, no, we're trying to go back uh, with the Russians. And it was one of the first examples in the modern age of a revolution being broadcast around the world on cell phone mm-hmm. videos. And I'd forgotten about them until all this came up again, so... Yes, we're going to discuss that in detail because that is actually essential, pivotal to the situation today in pers- as a perspective of how Ukraine deals with uh, adversity and with the Kremlin and like what Putin has been trying to do to them for the last, I don't know, two decades yeah. <laughs> since he came to power in 2012, I think. But, you know, in our first episode, when we solved the Dyatlov Pass mystery, we did explain the geopolitical situation in 1959. And at the time, the West had the more aggressive stance, at least in the air. And to be honest, I would have done the same. It was the Cold War. One needs to collect intelligence on the enemy and their nuclear capabilities, all that stuff. But now, in 2022, the situation is reversed 180 degrees. And Russia is, without a doubt and without reason, unprovoked, the aggressor. And what Putin is doing now is a grave danger to democracy everywhere, not only in Ukraine. That's a, a very important point because people say, well, I mean, it, it's been it's in Ukraine. What what do we care here? Yes, we do care because if we can't stop something like that, can we stop Putin at all ever? I mean, what's going to be next? Well, yeah, now, and that's that's the bigger that's kind of the bigger story here, I think, is the world was simpler, I suppose, is the way to say you know, when it was basically two empires uh, you know, bickering with each other via proxies in smaller countries, uh, it was all fairly predictable and, you know, and structured and there were no big surprises. And no, I mean, we all knew uh, for the most part that there was never going to be an open war between the Soviets and the U.S. when the Soviets were still in power because both sides have enough nuclear missiles to end the world. So exactly, it kind of fell into a routine. But since the Soviet party fell apart, it's not clear anymore who is really calling any shots. And the U.S. thought, I think, that it was going to assert itself in the early 2000s 
after 9-11, the, uh, all these wars that the Bush administration started, but well, we all know how that went. Uh, they did not magically conjure a democratic country in Iraq. They created ISIS, and they did not root the Taliban out of Afghanistan either. The Taliban's back, and ultimately, after 20 years of wasting time, they lost is what it boils down to, just like the Soviets lost in the early 80s. So Yes, and with Afghanistan, and then we're going to have to to get back to the subject, but this is so interesting, and like I love getting into this discussion. With, with Afghanistan, I do think initially I was uh, upset that we withdrew the troops on s- such short notice, but at the end of the day, that was a situation that needed to end, you know? So I was kind of... By the end of it, I was actually happy that we did. It It was just endless. So yeah, we had and, to stop it somehow. Yeah, and I mean, you kind of alluded to that a little bit earlier, that the Russians will learn the same thing in the Ukraine. It's You can have all of the fancy equipment and all the fighter jets and everything you want, but fighter jets don't go building to building and find guys with grenades and AK-47s. You know, it's at some point, Wars become a pretty short-range, face-to-face enterprise. And at that point, uh, a lot of people like, or, you know, bigger militaries like the U.S. and and the Russians, even in Chechnya years ago, uh, they don't have the stomach for it forever. So, you know, the world doesn't change that much. Yes, that I agree with. Uh, I would say, though, that See, having planes actually does help, and Ukraine should have some fighter jets that we should be sending them, us and the NATO allies and all the countries that promise to support them, but we'll get that in a second. Back to the World War Three situation right now, a lot of people are scared that World War Three could start, the, the situation could escalate if we impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Well, no, I don't think Putin is insane. He is evil. He's not insane. He's not going to start World War III because that would mean assured mutual destruction on, well, not even on both sides, on all sides. Yeah. That would be, if World War III happens now, like uh, Einstein said, the next war would be happening with stones and sticks. Now, back to uh, the history of Ukraine and how much they value democracy. Let's start with the Budapest Memorandum. So after the USSR fell in 1991, well, 1989 to 1991, Ukraine still had nuclear warheads left from the Soviets, right, on their territory. So USA and the United Kingdom did not want them to have nukes for a variety of geopolitical reasons, which I do understand. So in 1994, the United States and UK had Ukraine sign the Budapest Memorandum in which UK and Russia and US convinced Ukraine to give up their nukes in exchange for a guaranteed territorial sovereignty. Yeah, but so, uh, at some point, <laughs> at some point, you have to collect on that promise, do you not? Yes, and look, uh, Russia obviously is out of the question. They broke the terms of the treaty, right? But that doesn't mean that makes us exempt, us, the UK. I think France and a few other countries made some promises there too. So Russia broke their promise. That doesn't mean that automatically the treaty is 
void and null, and that the other countries who promised them uh, territorial sovereignty are exempt from following through with their promises. Yeah, we talked about this a bit yesterday when we were kind of planning what we we're going to talk about in this episode. That there's a lot of people uh, over the course of uh, recent history that can uh, tell you. Be careful what promises you get from the U.S. and the U.K. And for the reason that those promises are good till the next election and uh, political wins in democratic countries change pretty often. So being able to collect on those promises uh, short term, maybe 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, I don't know. It's It depends on... Uh, who's in charge, and you could just as well flip a coin. Yes, it's tricky. I would say, though, that generally, uh, and this is the more uh, sensitive issue, diplomatically and as a foreign policy, the U.S., for the most part, does stick to their line of, uh, you know, the State Department, um, Secretary of State, all that stuff. They have a unified policy, and it's a long-term one. So generally, I would say Ukraine was didn't do anything wrong by trusting us. I feel that the ones who are, uh, you know, to blame, so to speak, is us and the UK and the other countries who are now not turning their back on Ukraine, but not doing nearly as much as they could do. Yeah, that is I mean, the truth. And really, it's it's not possible for them to be able to... Uh, look into the future in a country that they don't live in and are not as familiar with the culture of to predict, you know, oh, will, you know, will the U.S. and the U.K. honor their agreements 30 years later or 20 years later? Well, in 1992, uh, that was probably more likely, but a lot's happened since 1992. And I mean, the previous president of the U.S., I was all for, you know, making fun of NATO and oh we don't need that anymore and well you know, we yeah. don't we don't need these State Department guys. We could just get rid of them and uh you know that's at least one political party in the US has gotten past uh all of their Cold War tendencies and decided, eh, we just want to tear it all down. So well, yeah. I disagree profusely with that point, though. I think NATO is very important. Also, one of the reasons Putin decided to attack now and enter Ukraine now is because he assumed that NATO, after our last presidency, was not as strong as it had been. The only issue is here we need to do more for Ukraine and we need to do more faster because time is running out. And here we are on day 10. I think it's day 10 since the invasion started. And President Zelensky is still begging for uh, military help, specific military help, okay? Because we've been sending them stuff, just not what they really need. That's yeah. the point. Uh, and just yesterday evening, I saw something online, uh, President Zelensky, a video of him saying, if you can't enforce a no-fly zone, if you don't want to do that, give me the planes. So, yeah, the Western countries have screwed this up. There's multiple things that are problematic about the no-fly zone now. Number one, who's going to enforce it? You're talking about bringing, what, American, British, French, German fighter jets 
uh, onto Russia's border to enforce a no-fly zone, disregarding what politicians see the world as, when you are sitting in the airplane, it is not hard to stray into Russian airspace. I mean, there's no border in the air, uh, and you're chugging along at 1,400 miles per hour. You're going to cover Ukraine in a minute. So that's a consideration. Number two, surely by now, I would think, and I, to, I mean, as, we're, as we said earlier, we're recording this early in March. So maybe things have changed. But I would guess that by now, the Russian Air Force and Russian artillery has already blown up all of Ukraine's runways. So if you're going to put fighter jets from somewhere else close by, they've got to be in some other country. Then it becomes a question of what country is going to volunteer to host you know, the airbase that probably gets blown up, maybe gets blown up. I don't know. I don't know if anybody would sign up to do that. You know, you're talking about what Poland, Romania, uh, places like that. I mean, if you got to put yourself in the shoes of the president of those countries, you going to volunteer to be the Russians' new primary target? I don't know. Uh, I would guess probably not, but um, I'm not sure about the politics of those countries. Also, you have to consider that. Putin is no stranger to evading no-fly zones. They tried to put a no-fly zone for Russian airplanes only over Europe uh, back during the Syrian attempted revolution in the mid-2010s. And Putin hid MiGs underneath an Antonov. An Antonov is a very large cargo plane, the largest cargo plane, actually. And everybody in the world uses them. It's the only thing big enough that you can stuff 777 parts in and 737 parts in and things like that. They're too big to fly in anything else. So the best place to see an Antonov outside of Moscow is in like Kansas because that's where airplane factories are. So, I mean, he's he's got experience evading no-fly zones. And, you know, if somebody sees an Antonov coming, they're going to clear it through because it's probably carrying parts they needed a month ago. And if it has MiGs underneath it, they're going to land wherever the Antonov goes, and then they'll just be there. So I think the better idea was for there to be surface-to-air missiles in Ukraine months ago, but that time has also passed. I think that's probably still the best option, because putting a no-fly zone in after the fact is not a trivial thing. First, that would entail removing Russian fighter jets from the airspace, which okay, you know, you're going to have a fight on day one. I don't know that anybody's willing to sign up to do that. Yes, I do. I do understand the geopolitical implications of imposing a no-fly zone. I get it. Uh, on the other hand, there are other things we could do militarily, and we'll get into that mostly in the second part. Before we get to that, I just want to point something that's been eating at me, and I need to say it now. I can't wait until we record episode two. Um, what Ukraine needed now in February 22, as Putin was amassing troops at the border, was advanced air defense systems because they are facing a gargantuan army. In my opinion, the Western leaders failed yet again to keep their word and help Ukraine. And this failure, whether it was 
intentional or not, was confirmed right before the actual invasion by retired Admiral James Stavridis, who, by the way, was also NATO's Supreme Allied Commander. And I quote, he said the following, I think air defense would have been a very smart move. If we had put more out there sooner, we would not have been where we are now. The shock and dock campaign the Russians can launch with those resources against entrenched Ukrainian forces before the main ground invasion begins will truly be devastating. The Ukrainian military has no answer for these weapons. Pretty much, yes. The most insulting response to this I've seen in the American press was a, uh, a member of the House of Representatives on uh, a news interview saying, that, oh, well, we can't give the Ukrainians uh, surface-to-air missiles because they're too complicated and they would not understand them. And I'm thinking, okay, wait, 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 wait here, buddy. Uh, last time I checked, the National Guard has guys who go to training one weekend a month and they move that stuff around and set it up everywhere they go. They will go to a hurricane relief operation and bring Patriot missiles and set them up. So you're telling me that guys who do this one weekend a month as a side job can operate a Patriot missile, but, oh, the Ukrainians can't figure it out because they're not smart enough. Okay. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So I think, though, that the situation is we are doing things. We have been sending things. I'm not saying we haven't. Us and many other countries is just not exactly what they need. And it's not enough. And we could do more if we really want to take a stance against Putin. Now, back to the short history walk through, you know, what's been happening in Ukraine. So in 1994, Ukraine signs the Budapest Memorandum in exchange for assured territorial sovereignty. Fast forward to 2004. Ten years later, we have the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. That happened between November 2004 and January 2005. Now, at this time, Ukraine was still under Russian influence, not territorial, but political. And they wanted to be part of the European Union because they knew that means they will be a step further away from Putin and his aggressive tendencies of dominating and taking back former countries of the Soviet bloc. Now, the people wanted real democracy, not Yanukovych, who was a puppet president appointed by the Kremlin. So they headed to the polls and elected his opponent, Viktor Yushchenko. A very important detail is that during the uh, election campaign, Viktor Yushchenko the Democratic candidate, the good guy, was poisoned with TCDD, the most potent dioxin that Putin exists. He loves his poison, he, doesn't he? He <laughs> does. <laughs> no, he really does. We'll see. It's insane. Uh, if we were to really, I don't even know, we're trying to to get all this in an episode just with the history part of what's been happening and then make may, make a second episode about uh, the current situation in the last weeks in Ukraine. But if we were to get into all of it, we would probably need 10 podcasts, not even 10 episodes, 10 podcasts. But after the back to back to the poisoning situation, uh, Viktor Yushchenko made a full recovery in time but he remained disfigured. And there had been other attempts on his life previously, on Putin's orders. Now, the runoff vote in the election was manipulated 
obviously, it always happened. Some Kremlin orders in the former Soviet countries, it's their modus operandi. And the election was marred by massive corruption, voter intimidation, electoral fraud, the usual things that Putin does. Now, despite undeniable support for Yushchenko, Yanukovych was declared the winner. And this caused nationwide protests and international scrutiny, and the results of the original runoff were annulled. Ukraine's Supreme Court ordered a revote. Now, the second runoff was declared free and fair, and it became impossible for Putin at this point to rig the vote because there are international observers on the ground at every polling station. Uh, you know, everybody was there watching. It was hard for him to do anything anymore. So Viktor Yushchenko, the rightful winner and the candidate the people wanted, was elected president. Now, this the Orange Revolution was a massive, massive blow for Putin because, one, it undermined his intentions of effectively being in charge of Ukraine from behind the curtains. And second, and most importantly, it showed other countries like Belarus and Moldova, who had puppet presidents appointed by him, that free elections are possible. And even worse, it showed Russians that free elections are possible. In 2014, so 10 years later, Russia annexes Crimea, which is, was part of Ukraine. Annexing Crimea was, I think, a dry run for Putin to test the waters, to see how is the West going to react. It's basically like Canada taking Montana. I'm exaggerating, but kind of to make an analogy, now was the time where United Kingdom and the United States should have kept their Budapest promise to ensure Ukraine's territorial sovereignty. I'm not saying go to war with Russia. I'm saying if you're going to impose sanctions, make sure they're not just a slap on the wrist. Make sure they're real sanctions. What the West did when Putin annexed Crimea? Brace yourselves. Sanctions, the slap on the wrist kind, like a ban on provision of technology for oil and gas exploration and a bunch of travel restrictions on oligarchs and those involved in the annexation of Crimea. That's... I... So, base, again, basically nothing. Basically nothing, yes. Yes. And even that, I mean, even that is ridiculous. I remember a story from the early 2000s from a friend in Louisiana where you know, the oil and gas business is bigger there. There's a lot of offshore oil activity out of New Orleans. And uh, I lived there for many years and have friends and family there. And yeah, there was a story in the early 2000s about the Russians buying an offshore oil platform from Royal Dutch Shell and just not paying for it after it was delivered. And then they, you know, Shell naturally did not help them rig it properly and they blew it up and killed like 30 or 40 guys. And, you know, so, I mean, like America saying we're not going to export oil and gas drilling technology to Russia is pretty silly considering they were going to call Shell for a rig design anyway and then not pay for it. So, I mean, these are all, you put all this in the context of things that really happen, they're really silly. You know, sanctions have far more effect on poor people than they do on the people who rule countries. I have to bring this in the conversation, even though I'm trying as much as I can to not get very political 
here in the US. Don't worry, I will get I will get I need to bring this in. <laughs> but the Orange Revolution and what happened there when Russian people started to realize, oh wait, if we actually take to the streets, you know, if the vote is rigged, we actually might be able to have a democracy one day too. And then other countries saw that example. They sh- they saw it can happen. So this is when Putin's hate for Hillary Clinton actually started because at the time she was Secretary of State and the entire time her message, well, the United States message actually, not like her own, it wasn't her message, was one of support for Ukraine's people and democracy, as it should be because that was her job. And Putin never forgave her for that. Never. And... In 2011, when Putin announced his running for president again, massive protests started in Russia. See, the president of the Orange Revolution, the Russian people learned. They, they wanted freedom. They wanted democracy. So in 2011, even some of his closest allies and advisors defected to the opposition party. The Russian people wanted democracy as well. Now, Putin came extremely close to losing hold on power in 2011. And this is the moment where his hate for Hillary Clinton cemented. This was it. Uh, Because I think, in a sense, the knife got too close to the bone. And ever since, he's been working towards destroying America's image in the world and the way we handle international situations through diplomacy and secretaries of state and the state department and all that stuff. So it tracks. And I have to say this because it's eating at me. The whole locker up, her emails, that's not, you know, that's not Americans' voices. That's Putin's armies of cyber trolls manipulating, a, well, not so well-educated edu- demographics in the U.S. Because that's the kind of rhetoric and disinformation he puts out there. And it works. It works well for him. He's evil, but he's very smart. Let's face it. He's not dumb. He divided this country, and unfortunately, we are, you know, reaping the fruits, so to speak, of this whole thing, which are not really good fruits. They're very bitter. And as we saw in the 2016 elections and on January 6, 2021, when we were this close to disaster, these things do not happen in a vacuum and they do have a real effect. Words matter. Words do matter. So we should learn from this and maybe move forward in a different manner. Let's be honest. It's probably now, not. Everything's going to stay the same. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, uh, I mean, there are other examples. I mean, Putin has not said anything that a Republican campaign advisor did not say decades before. You know, when he started trying to dabble in American news media, uh, specifically targeted at Republican voters, it was pretty amateur. I mean, we used to make fun of him in the you know early 2010s. We'd see these Russia Today stories about how there was a secret Obama donor gathering in the Redwood Forest in California and... Their justification for it was, look, we took pictures of the airport. There's old airplanes sitting out there. Somebody's flown in there. Well, billionaires don't fly in in a 1976 Piper Navajo. So 
<laughs> nice try. I mean, it was a joke. And I mean, in 2000, when George Bush was running for president, which he, by all accounts, was unqualified to be, uh, his advisor, Carl Rove, uh, the much more accomplished predecessor to Paul Manafort, um, Carl Rove ran a poll in South Carolina where he called Republican voters and asked them if their vote might change if they find out that John McCain had an illegitimate mixed-race child. Well, you know, John McCain has an adopted child that is not as white as he is. So that was their basis for the whole thing. And the only thing they cared about was winning that primary. And this was the same Karl Rove that when I was a kid in Texas um, and George Bush was running for governor, which he probably would not have otherwise won, he did the same thing. Karl Rove then was calling people in East Texas, very evangelical area, and planning the rumors in local newspapers and churches and stuff like that that the governor at the time was a secret lesbian and they were sending state funds to her lesbian lovers so that they could go visit each other on the weekends. And they made the same mistake that John Kerry did in 2004. Ann Richards, the governor at the time, looked at this stuff and said, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody's going to believe it. And they ignored it. Well, just enough people believed it to get George Bush governor. And... So none of this stuff is original to Vladimir Putin. Um, it's just not, you know. Republicans have been doing this stuff for decades. I mean, another one that comes to mind, in 1980, Ronald Reagan gave speeches at famous lynching sites around the South uh, about quote-unquote, states' rights. Well, it was obvious what was being insinuated, and nobody paid any attention to that either. People thought the same thing that Ann Richards or John Kerry did. Oh, that's ridiculous. Nobody pays any attention to that, except for the people who do. So, honestly, giving Vladimir Putin credit for all this, uh, it just it doesn't add up. If anything, he jumped on the bandwagon that was already rolling full steam ahead. And Eastern Europe was not the only place in the early 2000s where there were popular protests that resulted in a government being changed. In Egypt, the multi-decade dictator uh, who was propped up by Western countries, Hosni Mubarak, was overthrown after he made the foolish choice to turn off the internet during public protests. So what that accomplished was people who were content to sit at home and complain on their phones had no choice but to go out in the streets. And that got him quickly out of office. But 10 years later, where are they? They are ruled by a former military intelligence officer who was endorsed when he was quote-unquote elected by Hosni Mubarak. You know, because, of course, they are. The corporations that are reliant on the Suez Canal will not suffer a freely elected president of Egypt. That's never going to happen because, well, 
There are too many people with too much money involved in the Suez Canal. So that's been the case since the 1950s. Anyway, let's move forward. Now, one of the biggest supporters of the Orange Revolution was Boris Berezovsky, who was a former friend of sorts of Putin. Uh, later on, Berezovsky became a big opponent of his regime and went to live in London as a dissident, like the former FSB officer Alexander Litvinenko, who was poisoned with polonium in 2016 on Putin's orders. And also, guess who else was part of the group? Anna Politkovskaya, also uh, an exceptional Russian investigative uh, journalist, and she was murdered on Putin's birthday for exposing his war crimes and blatant disregard for human rights in Chechnya. Now, this is a story for another episode, but the point is Berezovsky, after many other attempts on his life were made by the FSB, was found dead in his bathroom, hanging from the shower curtain in 2013. And the ligature marks on his neck did not match uh, those one would get in a suicide by hanging. He had probably... Oh, the old Epstein <laughs> treatment. <laughs> uh, that's a... It's... <laughs> He got the Epstein special. <laughs> <laughs> that's yet another episode, and also I have different. I I I'm torn on that one. I find it. I find there are some issues there. On the other hand, I also see how a control freak like Epstein would want to go out on his own terms. So I'm torn. I don't know. I there's I too don't much. Know. If he killed there's... himself, if he killed himself, he did not set that Gulf Stream on fire in Bolivia the next week. <laughs> That I agree. Yes, definitely not. <laughs> now, back to Ukraine. So Putin persevered, even if Ukraine was led now by a democratically elected leader. He did not want to let it go because Ukraine is the buffer he wanted between Russia and NATO. So he persevered. He massively financed and supported Yanukovych to try and regain control by running against Yushchenko in the 2010 presidential election. And when they saw that they are going back in time, when they saw that their newly elected leader is, has fooled them, and instead of going forward, they were going back in time to the Soviet era, they gathered in the capital's independence square, the Maidan, that's in the center of Kiev, and they fought hard, really hard. Um, Yanukovych sent the army against his own people, 113 people died. And I'm talking kids, young people, women, it didn't matter. Uh, it was called the Revolution of Dignity. And everybody fought against odds for democracy. And democracy prevailed again, despite massive Russian support of billions, with a B, billions of dollars to finance Yanukovych terroristic operations against his own citizens. The GRU was involved, of course. The GRU is um, the main intelligence directorate of Russia. It's like the FSB, so the former KGB, but it deals with foreign military intelligence operations. Now, Yanukovych, defeated and soon to be prosecuted after murdering so many of his own people, fled, of course, to any dictator's safe haven. Moscow, like the coward he is. By the way... I, I have to say this because, again, it's 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 been weighing on me. Uh, guess who was uh, one of Yanukovych uh, Yanukovych's consultants? Who? Paul Manafort. The same. Of course, uh, he was. Of course yeah. And <laughs> 
for for the people listening, Paul Manafort is the same. Paul Paul Oh, Kelly. Oh. Uh-oh. Oh. Ke- we got wait. There's a guy there's a guy named Sergey in a tracksuit at the door right now. <laughs> <laughs> the bear was letting you know, yeah. So this Paul Manafort, he's the same guy who is still and also was for a long time uh, a Republican Party campaign consultant. And he was also the campaign chairman and chief strategist for Trump's campaign in 2016. Now, there's an exceptional documentary about the Maidan revolution. It's called Winter on Fire. And you'll see the spirit of this brave nation and how much they value freedom from the kremlin yeah uh the the that documentary was what reminded me i hadn't seen it until sandra told me to watch it uh that reminded me of uh all the videos from the early 2000s from uh the ukraine protests and what what strikes me about it watching it all again is um it's not necessarily the the intended theme of the documentary it's i mean it's uh it's it's one-sided but uh it's intended to be the thing that gets me about watching all that stuff again is it's it's similarity to all of the western country protests you can look back on if you look back on france in 68 or the u.s in 68 uh you know, when people are protesting against the Vietnam War and things like that, the the trajectory is the same. People who have had enough of the actions of their government to the point that they get out in the streets um, convince themselves that, you know, we're right, they're wrong, and when enough of us are in the streets, then we'll win. And then the cops show up with sticks and guns. And then that goes on for a while, and then there's a desire to find a political solution to this problem. And then, inevitably, you have a political candidate who is put up to betray the protest. And it sounds like, you know, from looking at the timeline, the, uh, you know, the Ukrainians pretty much got the uh, the 1972 treatment uh, in terms of how to defuse a protest movement so that everything can go back to normal for the people who profit from the current situation. Okay, so I have to I have to say that I don't think the documentary was one sided. The point of the documentary is to show the Ukrainians fight for their ideal and their hope to be in the European Union. No, it's it's and, okay. I, and I understand that it's uh yeah, that that's that was what the uh the majority wanted. And it's okay that the documentary is one-sided. That's fine. Well, I um, don't think it is. That's the point. I, I do believe it just <laughs> I, I do believe that it just shows how much they want democracy. So for our listeners, I'm originally from Romania. Uh, I am now an American citizen too. And I as a former uh satellite country of the USSR, Romania had a dictator. We we know what what the totalitarian regime looks like. We recognize the trademarks. We understand how dangerous this is. And I think there's a little bit of a disconnect between the view of people who 
in countries who have not experienced anything like that. And then you have countries like, uh, you know, Romania, Hungary, Poland, all these countries that have had this, Slovakia, Moldova, all these countries that have had this threat of Russian aggression on their heads for, for decades. And it's, it's just heart-wrenching to watch these people stopping tanks with their own body. Sorry, give me a second. Just give me a second. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Okay, just a second, just a second. Okay, I'm back, I'm back. So it's really hard to watch these images on TV of Ukrainians trying to stop Russian tanks with their own bodies. I can't do this deal. Just give me a second. I, I... No, I, I understand. Take a minute. I understand what you're saying, and I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not trying to denigrate or belittle what they're saying. I'm saying we do understand because we try to do the same thing, and we ran up against the same resistance. I mean, it's not that much different. People in power find a way to stay that way. The tanks and the fighter jets and the bombs are the last resort. Uh, it's a lot easier to rig an election. It's a lot easier to bribe a president of a smaller country to just do what you want him to do and betray what he ran for office for. Yeah, that's the same reason that 75% of the U.S. wants a thing to happen politically and it does not happen, whatever that thing is. Why? Because, well, people make money off of it and they don't want it to happen. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it happens everywhere. It's the same story. My point was just that what happened in Ukraine with uh, the Euromaidan revolution um, that is so very well depicted in the documentary we talked about, Winter on Fire. I feel that just that hit home with so many people in countries that have suffered because of Kremlin's influence and have dealt with totalitarian leaders. And, you know, we had a revolution too in Romania and it was... People died. I was about seven years old at the time. I still do remember the panic, the hope, the mix of feelings. The people were absolutely looking forward to democracy so much so that, as I said, people are willing to die for it. And we saw on TV images of grannies making Molotov bombs, Molotov cocktails, and young people, people who have been working as accountants. They've never held a gun in their lives. These people are now in the trenches fighting Russian soldiers. And it's absolutely insane that we as, you know, the Western countries are not doing a little bit more to help them. And more could be done, we'll talk about it later, but what I'm trying to say, Ukraine has been in the last decade trying relentlessly to become a member of the European Union. Um, even on day four of the Russian invasion, I think that was February 26th, yes, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, was pleading desperately for EU, uh, European Union membership. And that would have stopped Putin in his tracks a little bit, and Russian troops, I presume, would have probably slowly maybe even withdraw from would withdraw from Ukraine because I don't think Putin wants 
to invade a European Union country, because that brings along with it much bigger consequences. But what did the European Union do? Well, nothing. It's a lot of this is Putin sort of dipping his toe in the water over and over and over again to see what he gets away with, because I don't think anybody knows. And kind of alluded to this earlier, there hasn't been a confrontation between major military powers since the Cold War ended. So people just kind of continued. The world just sort of went along as it had been going before uh, with, okay, the U.S. is the one left, so the U.S. can project military power wherever it wants, and everybody else uh, has to, uh, you know, get permission from the U.N. or get permission from the U.S. first. And I think a lot of this is Putin sort of seeing, let's see how, let's see how much they're willing to commit to hang on to that. And I don't know the answer. I don't think anybody knows the answer. It's it's sort of unfolding day yes, by day. Yes, and no, what you're saying tracks because that's what Putin did with Crimea. That was testing the waters to see if he can move on at the right time and take Ukraine. And he saw. He, all, he got a few sanctions, nothing serious. So what was... Why would he be deterred? He tried it in Crimea, it worked. Now he's trying it, he's getting Ukraine. And my, it breaks my heart to say this, but I don't think without substantial military help and without substantial military armaments that they've been asking for, I don't think Ukraine can withstand the Russian onslaught. I don't think that is a gargantuan army and the United States, NATO, UK, France, Germany, all the powers that be knew from day one when Putin amassed troops at the border, that was, he amassed the largest numbers of troops at the Ukrainian border since World War II. So I find it really surprising that somehow we didn't send them what they needed then. You know, because now some of the arguments are, well, we can't really send them tanks and this and that, because it's very hard at the border to, you, you know, it's the logistics are hard now with the Russians invading. Well, yeah, why didn't we send stuff before when we could have? And we knew what was going to happen. There was a very big probability that Putin would invade. So let's not kid ourselves. We could have done much more. All the countries that have a have a say in NATO, in the European Union, could have done more. Uh, President Zelensky has been pleading almost every day from bunkers. Uh, and I don't think that man slept since it all started. And he's been pleading and begging for more help, specific help. And from what I understand, latest updates, he still hasn't gotten it. Not entirely. We've been sending stuff, but not the stuff they need. We're, we've been sending slingshots. They're going to a gunfight with with slingshots. That's my opinion. Yeah, I'm not sure the U.S. was sure what it was going to do with itself after the Soviet Union fell apart either. And it's kind of, I suppose, led us up to this point in time that, uh, you know, first it was, oh, well, we'll we'll justify our military budget in the Middle East. Well, that didn't work. And then, oh, well, we'll 
you know, we'll justify our military budget with uh, with drone strikes. Then we don't have to be anywhere. We can do it from far. Well, that didn't work either. And I don't think the U.S. had a really good idea of what it was doing after the Cold War ended either. And everybody has been sort of sitting around waiting on something to happen. Well, it happened. And looking back on the last few months, it seems very silly that the, you know, the idea of the Western countries was, oh, we'll just have to hurry up and get Ukraine into NATO. As if, you know, as if shuffling around pieces of paper was going to change Putin's mind. No, he doesn't care what paper you shuffle around at, uh, you know, at a NATO boardroom table. His intentions are the same. So I don't see what uh, signing treaties and paper that he did not adhere to was going to change. This all seems very silly in retrospect. And I suppose the more I think about it, it was always going to happen eventually. No, I agree to a certain extent. I do believe, though, that, um, yes, he's not honoring treaties like the Budapest Memorandum because it's a smaller treaty, it's not so well known, and it's not it, it doesn't involve a military alliance per se. But if, if Ukraine had been admitted in time, as they deserve, as they deserve, if they had been admitted in the European Union, few years back because they've been struggling and they've been making progress and I think they deserve. Actually, Ukraine is the best member the European Union doesn't have. Okay, now, as far as NATO goes, I don't think, I think that would have gave Putin pause. Yeah, he doesn't care about papers and, you know, treaties and stuff, but I don't think he's insane either. I think he would not want to start World War III. And if if Ukraine had been in the European Union, potentially in NATO, I do not think he would have invaded. I actually think now not only he's going to take Ukraine, I think he's going to go forward and he's going to take Moldova as well. But that's just my who's to stop him, what's to stop him. The recent history shows him the West is still too, well, scared, I guess, to do anything substantial to stop his progress and his plans of invasion and i do understand because as i said like now i'm also i'm an american citizen and to be honest i found out something peculiar did you know that uh i'm only an american citizen while i'm on u.s soil really yes so this is kind of cool and i i mean i found it peculiar but it's kind of cool so while i'm on u.s soil I'm only the government of the United States only recognizes me as a as a United States citizen. As soon as I step foot in any other country, I am a double citizen, Romanian and American. But here I'm only American. And I only found that out when I uh, when I took my oath. They told us that there. So I, I didn't know that. That's pretty cool, I guess. It's also weird in a way because, uh, you know, I do feel that I'm both. But legally, I'm only American while I'm here. <laughs> There's more to that story that they probably did not mention. You cannot just go throw your American passport in the nearest dumpster if you decide to revoke it either, because the IRS is going to want 35% of your money if you want. <laughs> okay. 
after all, somebody has to pay for the rockets and the bombs, and that's you. So. <laughs> that's all of us, I guess, right? Yes, the U.S. is the only industrialized country that tries to do that. And, of course, it doesn't work. I mean, that's a whole other episode I won't get into, yeah. but that's worth yeah. us talking about, too. There's... There are prominent examples of people saying, you know what? I think I'll just stay in Grand Cayman and not pay. <laughs> we Unfortunately, we can't afford the Grand Cayman as of now. So. <laughs> I don't know. We're working on it. Uh, we're going to be podcast celebrities here. In, uh, yeah, I- I'm sure of it. <laughs> so far, we've been uh, going through recent history as far as Ukraine is concerned, that we started with the USSR falling in 1991. We discussed the Budapest Memorandum in 1994, where Ukraine gave up their nukes in exchange for assured territorial sovereignty from the UK and the United States. We also discussed the uh, annexation of Crimea in 2014 by Putin and Russia. And we discussed the Orange Revolution, and then we moved forward to the Euromaidan revolution of 2010. Now, fast forward 10 years later, and in 2019, Trump called Zelensky and asked him to dig up dirt on the Biden family by opening an investigation. Zelensky agreed to pursue an inquiry into the Bidens and also asked Trump if he can provide any sustaining, supportive, supporting information for the Ukrainian investigators to look at. Trump had none. Nevertheless, in May, uh, Ukraine's top prosecutor at the time investigated the situation and said there was no evidence of wrongdoing by the Bidens and there is nothing else for him to investigate further. Trump decided to withhold badly needed military aid to Ukraine, about $400 million, if I'm not mistaken. And it did hurt the country's ability to defend itself. And also it emboldened Putin, because why not? Trump held back hundreds of millions of dollars in military assistance to Ukraine. That military assistance, that aid, had been approved by Congress, by the way. And the purpose of that money was for the country to be able to fend off Russian aggression. And this was all over a personal vendetta. This was not something that was based in U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy, national interest, geopolitical strategy, no. Now, there is a lot of speculation and many people have different opinions, but it is not a coincidence, I think, of given the historical facts we've been talking about and all the things that the U.S. tried to do for Ukraine as far as supporting their democratic endeavors that Putin really, really hated Hillary Clinton and liked Trump. I don't know. I mean, I don't... Trump's agenda was pretty much in line with what Putin's geopolitical strategic goals are and were at the time. Trump-Russia stuff for the most part. I think in the same way that Ukraine is the object between... Western Europe and the U.S. and Russia. Um, Putin is sort of the object between competing U.S. political parties. 
I don't even know that he planned it that way, but he certainly found himself being that way. And uh, he's not going to let the opportunity go. So I don't think Trump has much of an agenda other than seeing himself on TV and tweets. And they took the tweets away, which I'm sure he's still furious about. But yeah, there's a there's a video uh, Joe Biden was just talking about in public, you know, kind of bragging about getting a prosecutor fired in Ukraine back in 2015 in front of some think tank panel somewhere. And the difference in the two, I suppose, if you look back at the details, and we're going to qualify the whole thing. The difference in the two is the prosecutor that Biden was bragging about getting fired was a kind of Russian loyalist prosecutor. Uh, he'd been in office in the Ukraine for decades, and his most prominent recent track record was... He refused to prosecute people who had been shooting at the Maidan protesters in 2014. He was very interested in sending the police to raid the houses of you know, charity organizations or offices of charity organizations that were feeding and funding the protesters. So it was pretty obvious where his loyalties were, and that's why they were looking to be rid of him. I don't know why he had such clout in the Ukrainian government. I mean, he'd been around their capital forever. So, you know, people have a way of entrenching themselves. And what sucks is if you are the Ukraine and you are caught in the middle and nothing you have is what they want. You are just yes. you are just the object of, yes. of a bigger uh, competition. And there is you are no you are a pawn. You are a pawn on the chessboard. Exactly. You in are, a bigger game. Yes. And that sucks if you're Ukraine. That sucks if you're Vietnam. That sucks if you're Guatemala or Moldova, else. Romania, or yes. any of the smaller countries. Yes. yes. Slovakia, Hungary, Poland, even any smaller country. Even some of them. Even some that are maybe in the EU and NATO. Because I, I, I really hope that if Putin decides to move forward into Moldova, and who knows? I mean, I don't think he's crazy enough to try to take a NATO country and the European Euro, European Union country like Romania or like Poland. But who's to say? Because so far, nothing deters him. And he now knows for a fact that the West is really, really scared of even giving the impression of an escalation. I'm glad you made this distinction between how the U.S. operates and NATO in general compared to the EU. I think it's also like uh, it's also related the way they act is also related to what their goal is. The European Union, if they are giving money to countries that want to be part of the European Union, they have a different set of goals. Like they want them to have good good healthcare, uh, a good justice system, all that stuff. Uh, NATO and NATO countries like the Americans, like the United States, are giving money generally to enforce those countries. And it's not aimed as much as at health and education. It's more aimed at giving them military resources and things like that, but still based on conditions, which yeah. are pretty much the same as those of the European Union. So their scope is well, a little not different. Entirely. But I mean, America wants our own people to have worse health care and pay more for it. <laughs> I'm not going to argue that. <laughs> That's one point that I can't argue. You got me there. It is true. The 
I mean, the fact that the non-insured person here, thank goodness I am insured, but the fact that here, if you call the ambulance because you are hurt and you don't have insurance, you have to pay thousands, tens of thousands. I was floored. I never thought that is true. I When I found out about that, I thought people are making fun of me because I'm not from here and I I would believe it. I, I, I really thought they're making fun. I, I didn't think that was reality. But yes, it is. And it is insane. Whereas in Europe, you go as a tourist. In France, for example, you sprain your ankle or something and uh, you get like that boot and you get x-rays and they get and all that costs, I don't know, seven euros costed me, which is about, I don't know, ten dollars. If I go tourist, to Europe if, as a tourist, if I go to I, Europe as a tourist and sprain my ankle, I'm staying. I'm not coming home to get <laughs> what I'm going to come home and have to pay 40 or 50 grand for an ankle surgery. No, that's that's it. I'm staying there. I can't argue that either. So let's move on. <laughs> I, I appreciate that from a former Soviet country, you have uh, a desire for the people in your, you know, your home region to advance. And I'm, I think that's great. And I'm all for them. I'm just telling them, mind the terms and conditions, read the fine print because it's got there's there are yes, some yes i <laughs> i can't argue that yes there are some and as we've seen the budapest memorandum is is not worth anything right now even though i don't understand why any of the western leaders uh, are not sticking to their word but moving away from that even with all these uh things that i am upset about, I do believe that American democracy and democracy in general, any day is better than a totalitarian regime and a dictatorship. And that's just uh, a massive difference between Eastern European countries and the way everything is there and things are here. With all these um, downsides, I believe in American democracy and democracy in general. And that is the better option by far. We could do, I don't know, how many episodes? We got to get 10 episodes out of uh, the, uh, whether it be the Russian Federation or the Soviet Empire or the Russian Empire before it, when the, uh, when the czars were still in power. I mean... Ten episodes conservatively, I would think, could be. Done. Yes, could... I I feel like with the, with the current geopolitical context right now, I think a lot of Putin would be needed just so that people understand what kind of danger we're facing here because it's not it's not far away. People think, oh, it's all over. It's it's over there. It's in Eastern Europe. What do we care? The fact that Western countries are being right now put in a position of subservience in a way letting Putin Putin do whatever he wants while being on the United Nations Security Council and vetoing proposal of proposals of help for Ukraine and proposals of uh seizing the war and it is absolute insanity we are in a weak position this is not strength this is a really weak position we're in because as we see Putin is doing whatever he wants to do regardless of the fact that the world is united as far as at least as far as if this is wrong or right he's in it's wrong yes we all know it everybody agrees 
well, except the dictators of the world. But everybody, all normal countries, all democracies agree. And still, look at us, we're not doing nearly enough and we could do more. So what is to stop Putin from going for further? What is to stop him for influence, influencing geopolitics and our interests further as Americans? Not much. What I would like people to take from this is that the Ukrainians have a history of fighting for freedom. They value it so much so that they put their lives on their on the line. And that's not just words. They're doing that. They're fighting, all of them. Women, men, uh, even elderly people. I have seen video of an 18, 19-year-old, 90-year-old elderly senior who went uh, and presented himself at the military base and said, I'm here uh, to fight. I'll do whatever you need me to. And he said he's doing it for his grandchildren. And he was carrying this little bag with, um, like he had a few sandwiches in it, and like a change of clothes. And that is the kind of people you have in Ukraine. They will die for freedom. And this is really hard to understand for people in the West. But we need to take that image Keep that image in mind and remember we can do much more without inflicting, creating a situation where World War III would become a reality. There's Putin is not insane. He is evil, but he knows that World War III would be the end of basically all countries. Mutually assured destruction. So he's not crazy and we shouldn't be afraid of our own shadow and we should help our allies in a way that they need to be helped and with the items they requested, not things we consider are good enough for us to give to them as long as we don't upset Putin too much. What do you think? We're going to call this the end of part one. Before you go, one more thing. Ratings and reviews are important for every podcast, but especially for shows like ours. Dubious is produced by Just Us. Uh, we are both first-time podcasters, and we are using the code Neil wrote himself, actually. That's what the rentfree.media logo you see on our cover graphics is. We have no editing team, no sound designers, no researchers, no voice actors. We both have regular lives working on the podcast in our free time on nights and weekends. Neil does the technical side of things and complicated technical things I don't understand. And I do the artsy stuff, the graphics and so on. Um, we know that literally every podcast is asking for this, but if you enjoyed our story this episode and would like to support UBS, the easiest way you can help us out is to rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. Uh, it's really easy. All you do is hit the five star button on the show's main page and even maybe leave a review if you have a second to spare. As independent podcasters, we rely on our listener support. So if you like our content, please subscribe on dubiouspod.com. That's D-U-B-I-O-U-S-Pod.com. Or click on the subscribe to Dubious link in the episode notes. At the $5 level, you will get two full bonus episodes a month, one every other Monday, in addition to our free episodes dropping every Thursday. On social media, we are at Dubious Pod across all platforms. Thank you for listening.